Welcome in. It's the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Always great to have you with us. We talk college basketball alongside Chris Dorch of Blue Ribbon. I'm Kevin Ingram. What's going on, man? What what does Blue Ribbon do in the off season here? Uh, you know, I don't. I'm trying to think if we even have an off season. Uh, I've been busily, uh, you know, verbalcommits.com. They do not pay me. I, I will say that up front. This is an unsolicited endorsement, but it is a great website to track comings and goings of transfers. And I'm on that site five or six times a day. And mainly what I do, the the schools that I write, which are somewhere close to 30, I keep a folder on everybody that they sign. Yeah. And then I go to sports reference. Of course we had their CEO on our show a couple of months ago. And, and I, I uh, make a screenshot of their career statistics. So I've got a whole folder of every newcomer, and it just makes it so much easier when you sit down to write to have already done that homework. And then I've, I'm also proud. This is the earliest I have ever ass- made all our assignments for Blue Ribbon. So I've got the whole roster of writers set. It doesn't change much from year to year, but the leagues and the schools change. So there's always some work to be done with that. And then still looking for another printer. Uh, I think I've got a beeline on that too. Uh, that's become a tough gig uh, here in the modern era. But uh, so, yeah, it seems like there's never an off season, but I like it that way. I, you know, obviously we've talked about this. We, we do love golf and I play golf, but basketball is just a never ending pursuit. And dang, I, I'm so glad I, got, I stumbled into this gig because it, it hasn't felt like work, man. <laughs> that, that's a great thing to uh, to be able to say. And we're going to talk about the transfer portal, which has had as many as 1,400 players in it, just where some of the, the big crazy. names. crazy. It is, really is crazy. We'll talk about where and some of the big names are. And they've got till May 11th. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, the, the new rule is 60 days after a given sport announces its championship pairings. So uh, they have 60 days after that, and that that's May 11th. So – there's still a lot of decisions to be made. And, and as you said, there's a ton that's already been made. So that's why I, I'm a regular visitor to verbalcommits.com. Those guys do a great job. It's free, but even if they charged, I'd pay it. Yeah, they really do do a good job. And, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was going there about once an hour to see who the latest names were in the portal because there were just players pouring in there uh, for a few days. Yeah. It, it was just crazy. It's shocking. I, yeah. I mean, when Hunter, when Hunter Dickinson entered his name in there, the Michigan stud center. I was shocked. And and some pundits have posited that he might be the best player ever to hit the portal. And I don't know if that's true or not, but he, he certainly is a good one. And wherever he goes, I'm, I'm told that depending on Oscar Shibway's decision, Kentucky might be a destination. And I'm thinking he's going to visit Kansas too, but yeah, that, that one shocked me right there. Yeah, I actually saw his last game of the season. Uh, Michigan played here in the NIT against Vanderbilt, and he is such a skilled player, uh, just doing a bit of everything, uh, whether it's passing or posting or uh, all of it. He can shoot. Shoots the three. Yeah, average 18 points and nine rebounds this season. Just really talented and skilled big guy. So it'll be interesting to see where he lands. Uh, also, we'll, uh, later on in the show, by the way, we're going to recap the Mandalorian season finale. So uh, if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, we're going to get to that uh, coming up in oh, just a little bit. Oh, it was a good one. It was. 
was. It was really a good one. And Chris got all choked up at the end. We'll, we'll tell you why. <laughs> oh, you, you talk about Blue Ribbon never sleeping. How about Bracketology never sleeps? Joe Lenardi has yeah. already put out a couple brackets this offseason. I don't know what it all this means, guy, but it, it's funny to look I'm at. I'm telling you, man. <laughs> I think he's deranged is what I think. I think so, too. Uh, the most recent know. one I've seen, the last four in, uh, the last four buys are Oregon, Illinois, Boise State, and Indiana. The last four in, Virginia, Ohio State, Clemson, and Michigan. The first four out, Washington State, Virginia Tech, Stanford, and Northwestern. You guys got work to do. And the next four out, Missouri, Iowa, Mississippi State, and BYU. So what, whatever yeah, all that means with rosters extremely incomplete, but uh, there you go. <laughs> I don't know whether he has a crystal ball or, or a healthy supply of peyote. Uh, <laughs> or both. Yeah, maybe both. But, but but yeah, you just, it's so tough. A lot of these people do these way too early top 25s. And I know it's kind of in vogue, but in some ways it's sort of a fool's errand because you don't have any idea which players are going to stay in the draft, uh, which players might enter the portal, come out of the portal, or what acquisitions you might make from the portal. Since Joe released his bracket, just to give you an example, he had Tennessee number four in his first postseason bracket. Now they've dropped to number five. But since that that's happened, Santiago Vescovi has decided to come back. And they made two huge acquisitions out of the portal. Jordan Ganey, who's the son of their associate head coach, Justin Ganey, and Chris Ledlam, who's a kid from Harvard, who, I'll tell you what, reminds me an awful lot of Grant Williams, which is the reason they got him. Rick Barnes has done such a great job with these tweener forwards like P.J. Tucker at Texas and Grant Williams. And I think uh, Chris Ledlam wanted him some of that. He's 6'6", you know, sort of the, is he a three, is he a four, a small ball five? He can do a lot of things, and I think he'll really help Tennessee. So uh, Joey's already, you know, he's got them plummeting, but I I think if he'd have waited until literally all this happened in two days – if he'd have waited, maybe he'd have Tennessee uh, with an upward arrow instead of a downward arrow. Alabama was the number one overall seed in this past year's tournament. Uh, didn't really work out in, in terms of making it to the Final Four. But has any team had as much turnover since the season ended as the Crimson Tide? Nate Oates has to replace all three of his assistant coaches. They all left for head coaching jobs. Five players declared for the NBA draft, including Brandon Miller, which is no surprise, uh, uh, the, the outstanding freshman and player of the year. But, uh, man, that that is a lot of turnover, especially on the coaching side for Alabama. Oh, it really is. Uh he lost Brian Hodgson, uh, who's now the head coach at, at Arkansas State. Charlie Henry, who's now the head coach at Georgia Southern. And Antoine Petway, who had been there forever under three coaches and played there. Uh-huh. He has finally taken off. He went to Kennesaw State, which I think was a great hire for Kennesaw State. I, I think all those uh, Oates assistants will bring some of that system that he runs there. And, and be successful. But yeah, that's tough when you lose that many assistant coaches and then so many kids enter the portal or the draft. Uh, uh, so uh, he's got some building to do, but Nate, Nate, from what I've dealt with him, seems like a pretty chill dude. And I think he'll, he'll fill the holes nicely. He's already uh, hired Austin Clonch. That was announced officially yesterday. Uh, he was the head coach at Nichols State and had done a good job down there. So to get a head coach to fill one of your uh, assistant vacancies, of course, in, in the 
SEC, your pool for the three assistants, I know Tennessee's pool for three assistants is a million dollars. Yeah. So a lot of times an SEC coach can can swipe a head coach and pay him significantly more than he's making as a head coach. So I'm sure that's the case with Austin Clonch. Yeah, a lot of times it's just what that particular person wants to do as far as being a coach at a smaller place versus being an assistant at a at a high major and making that money. Uh, That's right. What's your best uh, avenue towards sure. eventually a, a, a better head coaching gig? And I don't think there's any doubt that uh, Austin made the right decision to leave Nichols behind and, and hook up with, with Coach Oates. Where I work, Vanderbilt uh, lost a, a really important assistant coach uh, with California announcing that Adam Mazzari has been hired as part of Mark Madsen's new staff out there. Uh, Mazzari's going to be a head coach one of these days. He is a really, really intelligent guy. And uh, going back west, he, he's from out west, so that'll be good for him. Uh, teams in the portal. Let's talk about Arkansas for a second. They have been among the most active teams in adding players from the portal so far. Khalif Battle from Temple. I saw him back earlier in the season. Jermon Mark from Houston. Keon Menifee from Washington. L. Ellis uh, goes from Louisville to Arkansas. And also forward Jeremiah Davenport from Cincinnati. You know, Arkansas, it feels like they have a lot of roster, like a lot of teams. They, they have a ton of roster turnover every year, but the, they have landed already several talented guys uh, from, from, from pretty big-time places uh, from the portal. It's interesting uh, for a couple of reasons. Coach Musselman, of course, has an NBA background. He was a head coach for a brief time at two NBA teams. And and he once told me that he had taken some of the things he'd learned about player acquisitions and, and uh, development from the NBA. And remember that great Nevada team that he had? You and I watched him make two second-half comebacks in the NCAAs and, uh-huh. in Nashville. That had nine D1 transfers on it. And now, this is crazy. He he tells everybody, and I don't doubt it, but they've got three assistants assigned to applying a proprietary metric that they use to analyze um, transfers to see if they'll fit in their system. Well, I thought it was funny when I read where they'd uh, talk to 100 kids in the portal and I thought, well, maybe that metric system isn't so selective <laughs> if they've got 100 names, you know. Uh, I had one assistant from an SEC school tell me that he, he seemed to think that there was no rhyme or reason to fitting these players together. Uh, but but you never know. Coach Musk knows what he's doing. He was in the transfer portal before that was cool. And, uh, you know, they're getting some good high school players too, so – uh, I think he'll figure out a way to put it all together for yeah, sure. Yeah, I think for some of these teams, it's just about getting the best players available and trying to figure out if you can make them fit versus trying to get guys who actually uh, fit roles that you need them to play on the front end of things. And, and you're right, and, and that brings up a great point, Kevin. What I've observed um, in in recent years, I don't know, a couple of years ago, the, some pundits made this big deal about how um, mid-major players, if they average double figures, they they don't typically do it if they transfer to a power conference school. But a lot of schools don't care about that. I'm talking about UConn. I'm talking about Penn State, uh, Kansas State. They were able to take mid-major shooters out of the portal. And if there's one skill that translates, we talked about mm-hmm. this, it's shooting. And they don't need these kids to average double figures. 
They just need them to come in and pop a couple threes. UConn had this kid, Joey Calcaterra. They called him Joey California. He came from San Diego. And, you know, he didn't average double figures. But what he did do when he was on the floor, he gave energy. And he could pop some threes. So uh, I think you have to really be specific. I kind of liken it to what I learned when I wrote this draft column for NBA.com for a decade. The deal was always that a player had a chance uh, at an NBA contract if he had one elite skill at that level. It could be shot blocking, uh, on-ball defense, shooting, whatever. And now I look at it the same way in, in the portal. If if a power conference team is looking at players from from a lesser uh, level of the of Division One, they look and if he has one translatable elite skill, then you know they're filling holes. I know Tennessee wanted had to have uh, more consistent shooting, so they they just took two guys out of the portal that can. One of them, Jordan Guinea, can really shoot the three. He shot at 49% on 150 attempts uh, as a freshman uh, from behind the arc. And this kid, Chris Ledlam from Harvard, uh, he shoots 56% from two and can make threes. He's a, like I said earlier, a Grant Williams guy. So they, Rick Barnes has learned, you know, you can teach an old dog new tricks to, to find fits out of the portal not just necessarily dudes out of the portal but fits and i think that's what the most successful portal teams have done is find guys that fill holes let's talk about some draft declarations uh purdue zach Eady, a national player of the year will keep his college eligibility but declaring for the draft uconn's andre jackson jr and adama sanogo the acc player of the year for miami isaiah wong uh, players have until may 31st if they want to change their minds uh for kentucky case and wallace and jacob Toppin are foregoing their eligibility but you wonder about oscar shibway antonio Reeves, and chris livingston shibway you know it felt like he was gone uh and i don't know how people view him as far as an nba prospect a, a terrific and dominant college player at times but he went through all the senior day stuff in kentucky and we were there for that too, with vanderbilt when we played up there but uh you wonder what's how some of those decisions will end up going especially for kentucky which has a very highly touted recruiting class coming in yeah it's really important with Shebway because i think hunter dickinson's decision of course we talked about this the michigan transfer weighs heavily on what Oscar does. I don't think the two of them, uh, it'd be a little crowded in that front court, I think. You know, I don't know the rules of foreign-born players and NIL necessarily, but I think NIL plays a part, even with Oscar Shibwe, who's not from uh, the U.S. originally. And I don't know. I I think the NIL had an unintended uh, great benefit in that it's keeping kids in school longer that might have, I don't know, made a bad decision and gone out and then didn't get drafted and eventually became basketball gypsies and end up playing all over the world. And, and you know, that's not a, a great way of, of life compared to the NBA. So I, I like the NIL for that reason. I was reading a column by the great Rick Riley, uh, ex of Sports Illustrated, uh, he had a piece in the Washington Post about Caitlin Clark, the Iowa uh, women's player who's so great. She makes 
And this is cheap, I think. They're getting off cheap. Uh, she's making 192000 a year on NIL. When you figure Olivia Dunn, the, the gymnast who didn't even compete this year because she injured her foot for LSU, makes $2 million a year on NIL. Mm-hmm. Caitlin, they're getting a bargain with Caitlin. But Riley wrote that why shouldn't she stay in school? The average WNBA player makes 76000 a year. So – the NIL has had an, I don't know uh, if it was intended or not, but it certainly had the side benefit of keeping good players in the college game for a lot longer simply because, hey, you can make a bunch of money and it's guaranteed. Chris, I think one thing that's uh, been interesting as far as a point of conversation since UConn won that national championship a few weeks ago is where they stand in terms of the blue blood programs in college basketball. Huskies have won five NCAA titles since 1999, but really not tons of tradition before then. So that that made me wonder, too, and thought we might have a little bit of this discussion. Where do they fit as far as that conversation goes? Now, you go back, as far as the programs that have the traditional success over long periods of time, talking 50, 60, even 70 years in Kentucky's case, uh, they won their first championship back in 1948. UCLA won pretty much all of its titles between you know the, the mid-60s and, and early 70s. North Carolina has been consistently good for a long time. Same for Kansas. Duke won all of its national championships under Coach K, but also has had success before then with other coaches and, and Final Four runs and trips to championship games. Indiana would once be part of this conversation, but they haven't been to a Final Four since 2002, despite having uh, five championships on their resume. So I think this is a really interesting conversation as far as where UConn fits in. They have the five titles, but not as much long-term success and tradition as some of those others you talk about. You know, I saw a couple of pundits on on Twitter say, well, now I guess UConn's a blue blood, and and I thought – now aren't they already <laughs> if you if you can win they won four championships in four 14 years or 15 years 99 was the first 2014 was the most recent until this season uh-huh. when, when you win four and the most ever i guess is ucla's what 11 uh to me that's blue blood territory right there and, and now that they've got five, I, I'd say there's no question. People tend to maybe forget about them because, honestly, this is weird. They were a forgotten program when conference shifting started because the ACC raided uh, the Big East for Syracuse and Pitt uh, but didn't think about UConn. And UConn was left holding the bag, sort of not to diminish the American Athletic Conference. It's a good league, but they felt almost forgotten there. And so when they finally got back home where they belong in the Big East, I I think now that has – and they've got uh, a great coach now that that I think will finish out his career there. So, yeah, to me, they're blue blood all the way. It may be nouveau riche, you know, uh, <laughs> new blue blood. <laughs> yeah, uh, if 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 you could use that analogy, uh, not old money, but but new money, but blue blood nonetheless. I would tend to agree with you on that. I, I although I think you talk about traditional blue bloods in college basketball. I, I think programs that have had tradition over a longer period of time, but. 
in this day and age, in the last 25 years, it's hard to find very many teams that have had the kind of success that they've had. And they've won those titles, five championships with three different coaches. So uh, that's interesting part of that conversation too. But I I just thought that was something uh, fun to talk about. And, you know, some people get really worked up about it, but uh, to me, there's no real right or wrong answer, but they they certainly have carved out their place among college basketball's elite five championships is five championships, especially when you've won them all in in this era where it's more difficult than ever to try to win that tournament. There's a reason there aren't any repeat winners, or at least there haven't been in, in 15 years. Yeah, I mean, you're right about that. And, and we also have to look at the women's program. It's a basketball school. Sure. How many have they won yep. now? Nine? Uh, I think they've uh, won like 11. It, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, just a dominant program. So the school uh, and their fan base love the sport of basketball. So they check all the boxes. You know, they've got a great place to play. They, they've got resources. They've got fan base. Uh, and they've got the success. I mean, there's no, to me, the barometer is the rings, baby. Yep. And uh, they, they got enough to fill up one hand. That's a ton. That's a ton. That's one place I've not been. I, I've never been to uh, Gamble Pavilion. I've not I, been there either. I don't know I've that I've ever, like I don't know that I've ever seen UConn's men's team play in person. I, I've seen their women's team play before, as in fact, in the, in the Final Four, but I, I don't think I've ever seen the men's team play. So I've seen UConn in, in the NCAAs, yep. uh, never in the regular season. We, we should make a road trip. Yeah, we we'll have to do that. Line. We can check that one off the list. I think they're doing a big renovation of Gamble Pavilion in the uh, coming months here. Uh, Chris, coach Stack to schedule the, the Huskies. Yeah, that's right. Out. Well, you know, Shea Ralph, who's the Vanderbilt women's coach, it was an All American player there and, and coached there that's for right. a long time, and and was coached, you know, assistant coach with Gino Ariema for a lot of those national championship teams. So maybe she could broker some kind of a, a game <laughs> for us to go up there and play, make that happen. Have a men's and women's games up at UConn with Vanderbilt. All right, that leads us to uh, the, the part that we really want to talk about, and that is the Mandalorian season finale. Wow. We always bring you our spoiler-filled Mandalorian updates, and uh, this will be the final one for this season of The Mandalorian. They wrapped it all up with the episode that, that dropped just a couple days ago. And uh, a, a quick recap, you had the, the big showdown between all the Mandalorians, which are trying to take back their home planet, and, and Moff Gideon and his uh, updated troops. Uh, Moff was defeated in a fiery ending. It was adoption day for Grogu. That was a, a really cool scene. And then in the end, it's uh, it's Din Djarin and Din, Din Grogu in their new home on the range. Uh, <laughs> as, as they were gifted that by Grief Karga, who is the uh, character played by, by Carl Weathers. But uh, there was, I mean, a lot of action throughout this season, but I thought the finale was especially good. It was good. And I'll tell you what, um, uh... My hat is always uh, going to be off to John Favreau, uh, actor first, uh, filmmaker in his later career, and writer. He uh, conceived of the Mandalorian series, has written most of the episodes, and people were starting to doubt him. They were talking about, oh, is it going to become, you know, the show where, there, where, you know, it goes over seasons and, and there's no resolution and you have to keep hanging in there over several years. No, he got it done, got out. And if you notice at the end, uh, part of the stipulation uh, for Grogu becoming Din Grogu was that they had to leave Mandalore for a while and start doing their little adventure of the week kind of deal. So next season is going to revert back to that. Mando and, and I'll tell you what, Grogu is handier than a Swiss Army knife. Man. <laughs> uh, they he saved the day big time, more than uh, once. And I'll tell you, when I got a little verklempt 
was when uh, Axe Wolf uh, crashed the 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 ship into the. He knew, uh, you knew he'd probably jettison out, but he crashed the ship and 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 destroyed Moff Gideon's base where he was cloning himself. Boy, does that take a bunch of ego! And, and he had, you know, figured out how to make this best car armor and beat the Ma- Mandalorians at their own game. So it's this fiery crash, and you're thinking, boy, these guys are marshmallows. They're toast. But you knew that Grogu was there. And all of a sudden, amidst this fire, you see the little guy with his hands up, and he's got this force field over him and Din and Bo-Katan. I don't know, man. I just got a little choked up over that. The little guy. He saved the day more than once. Yeah, yeah. He uh, protected him from the fire, and then finally it all all died down, and they were able to walk away from it all. But also set up this, I guess you would call it some sort of mech, like he was inside of the the droid and and operating that, and Grogu uh, put in a full day's work during that episode. And then at the end, they're they're kicked back in their new home. That was great. That was a fun scene to finish up the season. On Navarro. Yeah. And, And it's a perfect place for him to be. He, he's cut a deal to be the guardian of the outer rim. So we're going to see all kinds of episodes in the future about him and, and Din Grogu busting up pirates and stuff. I'll tell you, Grogu's my secret weapon, man. If you got a guy that can levitate stuff and, and throw up a force field, who's going to beat you? He has the one thing that none of the rest of them have, and that's the force. And so uh, he's got the force with him. And, and you know, he, he doesn't even have a lightsaber or anything. He's just a bad dude i guess this will be the end of moff gideon that was my question will it be a situation where he's he's cloned himself somewhere else and another moff gideon comes back i mean you can't you figure that's not going to totally be the end of that character isn't it because giancarlo esposito is is awesome as moff gideon really great bad guy um i I hope hope maybe they figure out a way to to bring him back like they did the emperor you know where it's you know some sort of spirit and i don't pretend to understand all of that stuff i mean terry the texas coach He's a dead ringer. <laughs> With the glasses, I really thought he was. Uh, yeah, I, we mentioned this uh, a couple of weeks ago that uh, somebody said Roddy Terry looked like he was going to take down the entire uh, Salamanca family with the reference yeah, to, to Breaking Bad, Bad and Better Call Saul. I promise you, dude, I, I'm doing the Texas story this year for Blue Ribbon. I'm going to ask him about that <laughs> and see if anybody's told him about it. But, yeah, I'd hate to see the character of Moff Gideon go simply because Giancarlo Esposito is, is a – I mean, he's one of the best in the world, but uh, I think I don't, I don't see how he walks away from that. Yeah. That, that was a hard one to walk away from uh, when the shift, cra- that, that shift crashes right on top of you. Uh, <laughs> speaking the mark, but you're right. He could have clones elsewhere. Uh, or maybe that was a clone that, that got taken out and, and he was safely somewhere else. You never know. Uh, he wasn't pleased Star when Wars universe. Yeah. He wasn't pleased when Mando like blew up all the clones uh, that he was trying to, to grow and get ready to go. He, he was not happy about that. No, yeah. no Mando uh, Mando took those out and he was bombed about it, but uh, a, a battle Royale ensued. And then Din Grogu boy, he's the ultimate weapon. And speaking of uh, Better Call Saul, they dropped season six on Netflix just this week. And so uh, I, I've uh, ventured into season six, which is the final one of Better Call Saul. And 
I got impatient, so I went all the way to the end and watched the last episode. <laughs> and uh, I knew I knew basically how it turned out. I, yeah. And so I, I went and watched it, and uh, I I've seen about five episodes of the thirteen in the final season. But I, I love those series, uh, Better Call Saul, and, and before that, Breaking Bad. Oh, they're Bad. great. Uh, I meant to ask you, have you watched Ted Lasso yet? I've watched some of it. And I've had a little trouble getting into that one. I watched the first couple episodes. Uh, I may go back and revisit that one. I know a you lot of people. With it, a lot uh, of people love that series, and uh, you know, especially people who are, are soccer fans. So I, I might have to go check that one. You out. don't even have to be a soccer fan. Uh, but the most recent episode it drops on Wednesdays, like the Mando does. So I always look forward to Wednesdays. But this most recent episode they had the team was in Amsterdam. I'll say no more than that. But it was great television. Uh, oh, I will say this. Uh, uh, Tex Winters, Chicago Bulls triangle offense figures in. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that's all I'll say. All right. But, uh, it's a great show, man. I'll have to go check that one out. Chris, we'll do it again. Uh, we try to have podcasts for you once or twice a month during the off season. Always a lot of fun. I enjoy the time with you, bud. All right, buddy. Take care. He's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. That is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. We'll talk to you next time.